Okay, welcome everybody to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to prepare pastors and other church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and associate professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington, and I'm joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, our professor of New Testament and academic dean here at RTS. Hey, Tommy. Hey, great to be here. Great to have you. Also joined by Dr. Gray Sutanto, Professor of Systematic Theology. Hey, Gray. Hey, Scott. Great to be here. Dr. Paul Jean and Dr. Peter Lee are on vacation this week, and so we are going to have to make do without them. So we've got a scaled-down group. This is a bit of a skeleton crew on the faculty podcast, and we picked what better week to talk about the topic of power particularly Christians, not only thinking about and sort of engaging with and interacting with power, okay, in general, but also Christians in their various spheres of society being holders of power. And and how do we think about power in the hands of the Christian? How do we think about power in our own hands? So I want to start off with this kind of broad discussion of what does the Bible teach us about Power. It's got quite a lot to say about power. Where should we start, Dr. Tommy Keene? It's an interesting question because, you know, in my field in the, in the New Testament, you know, I read Paul and, and Peter and, uh, and the Gospels, and it's, it's interesting because they're all writing from the perspective of people not in positions of power. None of them can can even really conceive of the idea of a Christian nation, as it were, or what it might be like for for Christians to be so populous that they have cosmic levels of influence in the the principalities and powers that exist. So they're all all writing from the position of the being oppressed. Uh, and so it's kind of hard, actually, to to think principially about what uh, what we do if we are in a position of authority, if we are in a position of power, uh, at least collectively, corporately. Um, but uh, but there are some there are some good places. And the, the one that comes to mind uh, is first Peter. Uh, again, Peter talking about being in a position of uh, oppression, but he says, you know, love the brotherhood, uh, honor the emperor, fear God, and immediately that kind of that kind of discussion sets up a, a hierarchy of how we are to think about uh, the authorities that are in our life, and, and you know, it begins with service, love of one another. It begins kind of with that horizontal, but honoring the authorities that are placed over us, and then honoring God above, above all. Um, so we're to show honor to those around us, but to fear God. We only, we, we're, we're to only to fear one power, and that is the principal power, God, God himself. Yeah, I think it's hard for us to even imagine how disenfranchised the ancient you know, second, temper, second Temple Jewish believer would have been um, you know, the first century Christians, how disconnected they are from 
their own ruling authorities. And you see even Paul talking about Romans 13, you know, this, this idea of submitting to Caesar because he bears the power of the sword. This is get, it gets quoted often. I remember, you know, Christian college students when I was in college quoting it to talk about why you shouldn't drink before you're 21, even though there's nothing wrong with drinking. This is the reason why we're honoring Caesar. And even in that kind of appropriating that verse to talk about Christian life today, we're forgetting how disconnected Paul is from Caesar, you know, and how radical it is for Jesus to say something like all authority, you know, in heaven and on earth is mine. Right. And that's the the theological foundation for the great commission, this kind of militaristic sending out of missionaries to proclaim the authority of Jesus Christ to the nations. And that, that's a, a radical idea that here, this, this Levantine Judean who's been executed at the hands of the Romans is saying, oh, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine, right? So we have this tension as Christians that we see the source of all authority and power being from God himself mm-hmm. and housed in King Jesus, and yet also, like Paul, having this disconnection from power, the, the idea the apostles would have even you know, imagined, like you said, that we would have this kind of power or access to power that some Christians have in certain countries. It really does kind of, you know, it, it puts us in this, in this strange sort of tension where I think actually there's a lot of trial and error. And you see this with Christians even today in a lot of Christian dialogue about how to act in power. We have to kind of try things out and apply our theology in ways that's that is consistent with our deepest commitments, and yet at the same time, you know, how do we how do we work with issues like you know national issues like you know poverty or something along those lines? There's a little bit of trial and error that has to be involved in that process because the Bible isn't a manual on how to do politics, for instance, or how to execute power. Yeah, in some ways, we're kind of off book in. in in those kinds of decisions. But principially, the Bible's pretty clear. And actually, you, know, you Scott, brought up Jesus give, getting all authority in heaven and on earth. There's this interesting puzzle in, uh, in, in First Peter where Peter gives a household code. It's right after that, that, famous, uh, that famous line that I just quoted about, you know, loving the brotherhood, honor the, honor the emperor, fear God. There's this household code, which is a standard format in the ancient world. We have them today, right? You can go to Barnes and Noble if you can find one, and you pick up off the shelf, you know, a book on how to run a household, how to, you know, seven steps of leadership, all those kinds of uh, books. Well, Peter's got a very short one embedded in First Peter, but it's it's in the wrong order. It's upside down. It starts not with the emperor and then to the governors, and then to patriarchs, and then, you know, it doesn't start with at the top and move down how other household codes are structured at the time. It starts at the bottom. It starts with servants, and then it talks, you know, and, it, and then it moves up um, to, to husbands and fathers, and then, you know, because it's kind of upside down, as it were, and there's this big puzzle, like, why is it upside down? Why do servants get the most time in First Peter? Uh, there's a Christological hymn embedded in the servant clause. I think it all goes back to Jesus as the one, as the model for us about what what to do and how to behave in the midst of all of our social interactions 
how should we be thinking? Well, Christ came not to be served, but to serve. Christ came as a servant. He came as a slave of God in order to serve one another. And that should be the model for how we think about the use of power, the use of uh, our authority, the use of the things that we've been given by God. We use it principally and primarily for service, to, to serve the brotherhood, to serve one another. And I think that's even embedded in the way we talk about authority in the United States, uh, that, uh, you know, senators, presidents, they're in a position of, they're public servants. Uh, that's crazy to think about the president as a public servant, but it's consistently biblical that the way we are instructed to use our power is the way Christ did, who came not to be served, but to serve. We, we use it to assist others. Yeah, I've been really helped by thinking about this issue, especially thinking about the Christological issues at the center of it by uh, Matthew Kamen's book, Christian Hospitality and Muslim Immigration. In that particular work, he argues that Christians are very anxious, uh, much like their secularist counterparts, about the way in which Muslims are immigrating towards the West and they're relocating there and they're now uh, confronted with the fact that these religious aliens and strangers, so to speak, right, are actually now their neighbors. And how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the fact that Christianity now is not only just a growing minority, I mean, we're becoming more and more a minority, but also that there's other religions now who are also in the minority with us. And he talks about how a lot of Christians there are, are anxious about that fact. But he reminds us about the fact that, you know, this is a point that Abraham Kuyper made as well, is that to affirm that Christ is king and that Christ has power is not the same as affirming that Christians would have power. These are completely different things. To say that Christ is sovereign and that Christ is on his throne is not equivalent to saying that Christians would be on the throne today. Christ is our head, yes, but Christ is our head and his kingdom is not of this world. And so Christians today, we are pilgrims fundamentally. We're waiting for the final kingdom. But until there, the earth is not our home. This is not where we would rule by sight, right? But we rule by faith in the sense that we look upon the final kingdom where Christ has promised us a place in. And so Kaming basically argues, you know, drawing again from Kuiper, Kuiper was, was facing these conservatist claims that says that Holland has to be a Christianized nation once again, that the government has to enforce a kind of uniform Christian state religion on everyone. But Kuiper was basically saying, no, as a Christian government, we, sh we should actually allow Muslims to have their own schools, Roman Catholics to have their own schools, secularists, liberals to have their own ways of thinking, and we shouldn't impede upon these things. Why? Because of the reality of common grace and God's patience, and that Christians are called to be pilgrims, to be welcoming to their neighbor now, not expecting to be the power today. So if there's anything about a sound Christology, I think power for Christians is not something to be grasped at. If we happen to have a kind of worldly temporal power now, it's not because we are grasping at it as a kind of direct goal, as a kind of a direct ambition. If it's a byproduct, if it's something that is given to us, then we would happily respect it and we would happily accept it in terms of, like, like Tommy said, we're public servants now. We are now servants of the people that are under us rather than to lord it over them. And I think that's stemming from the fact not only that, that Christ is king and we're not, but also that Christ's kingship, like Tommy said too, norms our way of leading, our way of dealing with power. 
namely that Christ did not hold his divinity a thing to be grasped, right? But took on a form of a servant and our lives as Christians, because we're in union with Christ means that we will be conformed to his life. And what was Christ's life like? It began with humiliation and only later on was he exalted, right? And so Christians today should only expect this humiliation, not to grasp at power, but to embrace, anticipate, expect cruciformity, right? And I think when we see that our lives are cruciform and that Christianity is fundamentally a cruciform religion, I think that's why we see the tension between claiming that we are Christians and also claiming that Christians ought to be in power or that Christians ought to grasp that power as the direct goal, right? A cruciform religion does not fit well with gaining power for power's sake. Hmm. Yeah, that idea of, of public service is so important in scripture and it kind of, and it does come out of our theology you know, the ethics springs from the theology of being made in the image of God and, and worshiping God appropriately in all areas of life. And that that would include power uh, of any kind being used in the service and the honoring of those made in the image of God. And I think that's actually that if you're going to have a Christian Someone might say, well, in that case, Christians shouldn't be involved in any kind of power constructs or something, as if that were possible, right? You know, but what a Christian can do is the way that the Christian does this in a faithful way, right, is seeing this as how do I honor God? How do I honor those over whom I've been given some kind of power? How do I honor them in the service of this power? You know, and, and I and I think that's that's a key delineation, particularly when we're talking about things like religious liberty, Gray, as you just brought up, you know, and religious freedom and the idea of loving our neighbors in a way that even allows for them to um, you know, practice religion in a way that they see fit. You know, this is kind of radical even for some Christians today, oddly enough. And it's something that actually wasn't that controversial, you know, particularly in the United States. 20 years ago, but is more controversial now on, you know, both sides of the ideological aisle, we might say, you know, there's, there's growing number of Christians who are pushing against the idea of religious liberty and talking about some kind of Christian nationalism uh, that needs to be established in the United States. And um, when you apply those doctrines, like loving the neighbor, like honoring those made in the image of God, and even kind of reading between the lines. I mean, obviously the Bible doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about religious liberty. That's, that, that would be an innovative political concept. And yet there is a kind of religious freedom that's, that's assumed in scripture where we recognize that God is judge. And it's interesting, you know, that, you know, the, the mandate of Christ to his apostles to go to villages and to preach the gospel. And when the village rejects to leave, you notice it doesn't say then go get an army and establish a militia and force them to believe or something along those lines. There's this kind of implied assumption of freedom of conscience that as Christians, you know, can be quite troubling perhaps if you're trying to sort of push a political or power agenda on another group of people it can be kind of hard to observe that idea of freedom of conscience, recognizing that God alone is sovereign, but also because God's sovereign and because all authority has been rested in Christ, you know, because of those things, we can actually let people, as 
that were, um, you know, have a freedom of conscience and a freedom of religion. As a matter of fact, it's a good thing. It's an honoring thing for us to do that. Yeah, I think you could put it, uh, on, honoring is a good word. You could put it in that, in that category of how do we honor one another? Uh, I, I, again, I just, I really think First Peter's got so much here for, for us to think about. And that language of honor is, as, as you both know, I mean, it's critical for understanding the New Testament world in general, but it's all over the place when it comes to First Peter. Um, the, the, you are connected. P- Peter doesn't see you as an, as an individual uh, with, you know, completely private, uh, private life, uh, I- anything like a private life. You are constantly in, connected to other people. You're connected to people who have power over you, and you're connected to people over whom you're an authority. And in all of those relationships, what should characterize every relationship you have, whether it's somebody above you or under you, so to speak, is honor. You honor that person, and you use whatever tools, assets that you have to, to show honor. Uh, and to, to honor is to to make a big deal about uh, to 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 respect and to show to show favor for, and we do that by uh, by protecting the other person's freedom, by protecting their rights, their assets. I think about the Westminster Confession of Faith here and, and the the, t- the Ten Commandments in, involving us promoting the good of another. Uh, and, and the well-being of other people. Those are all ways in which we honor the people around us. And we are to do that not only for those who are fr- friendly to us, but for our enemies as well. Yeah, and that's the hard part. I mean, isn't it? The, the, the recognition that even on uh, this side of the new heavens and new earth, your political opponents also deserve that honoring and that love that we're called to in Christ. And, and, and I think that begins in understanding their arguments, understanding what they're trying to accomplish, even recognizing um, shared, shared value systems and shared beliefs. I think that's something we, we often kind of besmirk as, as being soft on an issue or something like that. If a person can, can sort of reach across the aisle as it were, and understand the position that someone else is coming from. And yet I think that's actually a deeply Christian idea. You know, I know that we've, we've talked about this before. We've talked about disagreeing well, but the idea of understanding where someone's coming from and not simply demonizing, you know, and we can do that because of this doctrine of the image of God and this kind of shared, uh, the shared ontology that we as humans have. And yet also because we have a deep understanding of sin and total depravity, we can also not be surprised when someone's just wrong, right? Or someone's just abusive or someone's just evil uh, or oppressive in their use of power. Um, That's a hard, those are two hard truths, I think, for a lot of Christians to hold. But at the same time, I think it's something the Reformed doctrine does so well at articulating our shared humanity and also our shared, the, the shared depth of our depravity, both of which find expression in our uses of power. So, so let's, let's actually adjust this a little bit. We, I think we've established a good idea of, of the Christian, uh, let's, let's say the Christian Martian who comes to earth and is asking, okay, um, 
Yeah, I guess, I guess it doesn't really work. This is that kind of philosophical allegory people use. If a Martian were to show up, what if it was a Christian Martian? Christian Martian. From Paralandra or something yeah. like that. And he showed up and was saying, what is this power of which you speak? Okay, so let's move on from that to now that, now that the church has, in various societies, gained access to the halls of power in a way that's really quite unprecedented in the Bible, you know, I think there's a reason why people talk about being a Daniel these days, you know, because there's actually not a whole lot of biblical teaching about having risen to positions of authority in secular, you know, quote unquote, secular, not to be anachronistic, secular governments. You know, what, what, how does a Christian think about the reception of having and exerting power, whether it's in your family, you know, Tommy, you talked about the different spheres, whether it's in your family, whether it's with the contractor who you hire to come and do something at your house, you have a certain power over them. Maybe it's your homeowners association. Maybe it's the school board. Maybe it's the community group that you're a part of. Maybe it's your church. Maybe it's your seminary. Maybe it's your local government or your federal government. How does the Christian then, having received this power, how ought they think about exerting it and using it. There's some, are there some principles we can come up with apart from or in addition to the idea of, of respecting or honoring or serving others? Yeah, I think coming back to the idea of honoring, especially with regard to uh, the family here, right? I think it's important to emphasize that the Christian way of honoring is very different than the Confucian idea of the honor-shame system that we have embedded in filial piety as an ethic, for example, where honor is just automatically expected to those who are above us, those who are older or those who are the heads of the family, those who are the heads of the nation, right? Where power and honor is simply expected of them to, to be given unto them. I mean, and that they could simply demand it. Right. I think with the Christian notion, uh, there's always going to be someone above us, no matter what kind of leadership we already enjoy. There's always a greater one who would be honored above us and his honor comes first before our own honor. And as we seek to honor others in our lives, and as we seek to be honored as well by others, we have to know that this honor can't be defined independently from the honor that is due to Christ, right? The good and well-being for myself means sometimes exposing me to my own mistakes, exposing me to the fact that I'm not acting or functioning in a way that demands and commands respect. And therefore, because God is to be honored above me, I should be exposed to my lack of honor at that point so that I can, again, conform myself to the honor that is proper to the name of Christ, right? So that's radically different from, I think, uh, what you see in Asia where um, honoring someone simply just means covering up for them no matter what so that they always look good. And I think that comes out, for example, in, in an Asian context where the secrets of the family can only belong to the family and outside we have to even sometimes lie for the sake of the family, for the sake of the reputation and the name of the family, right? If we understand that the family's honor is always going to be subordinate to Christ, right? The family's honor therefore cannot be defined apart from Christ. It is Christ first that we need to exalt. And if that means exposing ourselves to the truth, then we ought to be willing to do that. And I think for Christian leaders, no matter what sphere they are in, it means also, acknowledging the fact that they too could make mistakes, that they too um, could be subjected under this same authority that both leader and servant or both leader and follower are subjected under, which is Christ's own law and Christ's own character. That's great. Yeah.
Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Uh, it, it's another one of those kind of principial things that even that, that cuts across cultural barriers, historical situations, and things like that. That that we remember, that we honor, not because not from some sort of anthropological reason, like this is just how society works. This is this is for the smooth running of of the culture. We honor because we honor Christ. And that's where both Paul and Peter lodge or anchor the duties associated with us socially in, in bringing praise and glory to our maker, to Christ. And that, Gray, you used the word earlier, cruciform. That's why all of our relations need to be cruciform in character, because our relationship to Christ is that way. And we model that in every other kind of relationship that we have. And for me, that works out pretty practically in the day, the day-to-day affairs of life. I'm not a, I'm not a, a big and important person, but there are people who I am called by God to shepherd, whether in the church or in my family. And there are people who shepherd me whether in the church or the, and, and all of those things need to be characterized by a desire to love Christ, to, to promote Christ and to promote the honor of Christ. And that means that one of the prin- principal ways that that plays itself out is being able to maybe gray, this is kind of the, the personal side of uh, what you were just saying, but being able to admit wrong, being able to, to say, I'm sorry, to confess my sins to those whom I'm, uh, like over, so to speak. I think as, as a parent, one of the first things that I wanted to do and wanted to do different was make sure that I'm apologizing regularly for things I do wrong. Um, that's the, the instinct of being in leadership is the opposite, right? To not admit fault, but being able to say, no, that was wrong. I did that poorly. I sinned. Um, that that is principially part of being a good authority, being a good leader in people's lives is acknowledging fault. Yeah, I was raised in a family that was um, deeply connected to the Navy. <laughs> so my grandfather, my uncle, um, and my dad were career Navy guys, and you know, particularly being raised you know on Navy bases you saw these dynamics of both power and authority. And we're kind of talking about them both and and authority is in itself a kind of power. Um, But, you know, in in the military, you see someone's power, their ability to change their life kind of written on their clothes, right? Because you have these uniforms. And I can remember as my father rising through the ranks got different uniforms, right? He got different things to reflect his rank. You know, he was really great at kind of thinking out loud about his leadership models with particularly with his, with his son, you know, and, and with the family. And one thing that was always clear just to your point, Tommy, is, is that, you know, the Admiral is no better of a person than the, you know, the, the, the seaman or something like that, you know, the E1, you know, which is the you know, lowest rank. I mean, this is right in as an enlisted person. The E1 is no greater or less than the Admiral, right? 
However, the Admiral has this now responsibility to steward this power and this authority to ends that are to the benefit of those who are under him, the nation that they're serving, um, you know, the Navy, the, the readiness of the United States military, all of those things. And so leadership wasn't about being the best person or the bet, you know, wasn't about being better in some kind of ontological sense, the top, the top dog, you know, as I think both in the East and in the West is, is a common view of leadership. You know, I've got an entourage and that means I've got value all of a sudden, you know, but rather the idea that the Admiral's job, his responsibility is to take this group of individuals and help them work together in a way that is the best for them and the best for the organization that they're serving, right? You know, really taking their gifts and their talents and their skills and facilitating their best use of those things, you know? So even in a leadership model, whether that's in the family, you know, and caring for the relationships in the family and you have all these different people, I've got five daughters with very different personalities and trying to care for them and love them in a way that they're able to grow into who the Lord has made them, right? Or at the seminary, trying to gather together faculty and staff who can serve the students and serve one another. You know, for me, I, I think a lot about that, but it's not about me being kind of like the top guy who's, who, who sort of won the race and now I get the prize or something. And obviously I'm not even in a system like R, RTS, you're reminded of that regularly, <laughs> you know, being the president of a campus in, in the midst of a bunch of other campuses, you know, but that's, it is, it's about using those things that you've been given, Tommy Keene, you know, as, a, as the academic dean you know, and the, and the professor of New Testament and Gray as a professor of systematic theology, you sit down with those students. And as I think Michelle Foucault would rightly tell us, we're exerting power when we teach and doing that in a way that is honoring of those around us and honoring of God and whose image all of our students have been made, honoring of Christ, who is the shepherd of us, a bunch of sheep, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a kind of radical way of turning things around where it actually can't be about you accruing power for your own benefit, right? It has to be about service of the others. And I love, you know, that Philippians 2 passage that you cite. I think about that a lot, Gray, you know, the idea that Christ didn't consider divinity something to be hoarded, right? Or clung to in the way that maybe Mary would cling to Christ's robes, right? It's not something to be clung to, uh, but rather he's, he allows himself to be humiliated for the service of the church. And that Paul says, have that mindset too, right? It really does change the way you think about the power you've been given. Also reminds you too, that everyone's got power. We've all got some power in these different ways. And how do we exert those? How do we exert that power in a way that is honoring of God. I think that's, that's right. We've all got power in, in various ways and in various spheres in which we operate. And that requires us, that means that no matter how much, how insignificant we think we are, we need to wrestle with the pragmatics of how we use that power. You know, thinking about Foucault who, for whom power is, ever present, but largely negative, we, we can change the conversation a bit and, and, and see in this upside down universe that, that Jesus has built in which 
I am to use my power principally to serve and to honor others. Like that's, that's its function and its usage. We can, we can flip the conversation and have this power is not a problem, but it is the, as you put it, Scott, the, the productive uh, stewardship of other people's gifts and other people's assets. One of the, one of the ways that I can, you know, that we've seen power go wrong, especially in Christian circles is when those who are at the top, those who are presidents and the top dog pastor at a mega church, when what, what can go wrong is to think that my job is asserting my authority. The primary way in which I am to exercise power is by making sure that I'm exercising power um, rather than assisting and building up the people that are, that, that I am, called the shepherd. And a good check on that, that we have in our Presbyterian form of government is the plurality of elders, you know, especially in the church, especially as we think about leadership in, in the church. I am not the guy at the top. As a pastor, that's not my role. I am a part of a group of uh, elders to whom I, I offer submission. And there's this mutuality in that. Uh, so thinking about, even in roles of authority, thinking about to whom should I be submitting and to whom should I show proper honor is a, is a nice check and a nice corrective that not only keeps power from running amok, but also promotes the, you know, the other people in the room who have gifts to offer and service to make for God's church. Tommy, what you just said just now reminds me a lot of um, an author that I often read and watch. His name is Simon Sinek. I mean, he... I thought I, thought I was going to remind you of Herman Bobbing. <laughs> no. Well, not all things lead to Bobbing, I suppose, at oh. this point. Okay. So, though he's always in the background, right? He's kind of a phantom haunting all of us, uh, at least me anyway. But um, yeah, Simon Sinek, who's really a secular author, but he writes in the field of business leadership but he basically makes this distinction between authoritarianism and leadership. And basically he says exactly what you just said and what Scott just said too, in some respects, where authoritarianism is asserting yourself, making sure that you are the top dog, making sure that your voice is the final say towards everything and leadership, which is exactly that causing the people who are under you to flourish, finding out the gifts of each particular member that is in your organization and making sure that those gifts are used to the best possible way, right? That they are actually being maximized in terms of their talents rather than suppressed. And that means therefore giving them enough freedom and exactly to give them that area that they're good in so that they can flourish in that area. And leadership is going to take delight in that. Leadership says, I will delight in the fact that those who are working in this organization are flourishing. They don't see that as something to be envied or as a threat to their power, but they see that as a manifestation of an organization's flourishing when everyone feels that they can take ownership of their work and that they're flourishing in their work. Yeah, I think that raises a good question about what do we do when you're around bad uses, okay, to use that theologically rich term of bad, okay, mm -hmm. or um, ungodly, abusive, oppresses, oppressive uses of power. And you actually get to see quite a few examples of this in the uh, in the Old Testament, as in the New, 
but where you know the prophets are standing up to those who are using power in a way that exploits others. This is a common problem in the prophets. I just got done teaching this prophets class over the course of the summer, and I'm continually struck by this clear line that the prophets see between personal a lack of personal holiness and oppression that things move very quickly from idol worship to, you know, weighted scales that are exploiting the weak and the poor. And uh, they stand up to things when they see them, right? You state what the Lord uh, calls us to, even when you look, by the way, to the oracles against the nations, where you, um, you see prophets talking to nations that aren't Israel, that aren't theocracies, and the stipulations that they bring to those nations about honoring God, being treacherous, being um, being corrupted, and I think Christians do have a, a, a stance. Keeping all of this in the background, where there is this stance that we ought to have against abuse and against oppression, and against ungodly uses of power. Um, and yet, of course, the way that that gets worked out is going to be in a variety of different, you know. A variety of different ways depending on the the degree and the context of the situation in which we're dealing but you know um i, I had a good friend whose uh whose wife's father had been quite abusive and as they grew in their marriage and their family uh, he had to think about and his what he and his wife had to think about how they would take their kids and engage with the grandfather now right the, the father-in-law and that has to do in a way with corrupt uses and ungodly uses of power. They had to think about how, how do we deliberately love our children and love one another? How does the father, I mean, how does the husband love his wife when visiting the family, okay, visiting the extended family? And that issue itself has to do a bit with, you know, facing ungodly uses of power and speaking out and being honest and clear about what those things are. And yet at the same time, not using that as a groundwork for you becoming your own oppressor and abuser, right? That's, that's the terrible effect of sin is that often sin is committed, but it doesn't end there. It then brings about sin and the response to the sin. And uh, we, we all have to say with the psalmist, you know, search me, oh God, know my heart when it comes to those kinds of instances. So I think even on a local level of the family, that's a big issue. And of course, that's a whole other issue when you're talking about political uses of power and corrupt governments and how do Christians operate in those kind of contexts. Those kinds of questions can get very challenging very quickly. Uh, again, principially, I one thing when we're in when we're in a situation like that where we're surrounded by an ungodly use of power we need to remember that like you said that we don't respond to the ungodly use of power with an ungodly use of power we we don't we don't tackle the problem but in a way that is principally different than the cruciform ethic that we have been discussing all along um it, it it's still the model of serving our neighbor and seeking the good of those those around us rather than asserting our own authority asserting our own force in exchange for force kind of thing now, it gets tricky though because uh, you know you can misapply that right that uh, by saying to somebody who is abused that they should just uh continue to to in that situation of abuse that they, sh they should just submit to their abuser and i think those are profoundly mistaken 
types of situations. And yet, uh, at the at, you know at the same time, we we can think creatively and wisely about how do I be Christ to in the midst of this situation? How how, how do I, on the one hand, uh, protect myself and others around me, and yet at the same time not respond to power to to the abuse of power with a similar abuse? Yeah, there's that realization that you have power a, so you can't, you can't say, I want to stop the world and get off kind of thing. Right. You know, you have, you have power to engage with these things in, in many cases, not in every case, case, but in many cases you do, or you will at some point have power to engage with abuse and oppression of some kind. And you're only responsible, I think, for the thing that you have power the situation that you have power in. And so I, I think, you know, for instance, at the, the level of, you know, political discourse, you know, in the United States, at least, um, you know, the c- citizens have a, a kind of power. They have this electorate, electoral power. And I can't just act as if I'm not a part of that system. I've been given that system and I'm called to steward it, steward that authority that I have. I mean, you know, for me, things go back to the Shema. They go back to Deuteronomy 6. How do I love the Lord my God with all of my strength? Well, when I look at my strengths, right, which we could talk about as power in a way, you know, with my estate, I have my financial estate, I have my social estate, I have my creative estate, my relational estate, and I've got a a certain political estate, right, in this vote and in this voice. And, um, I think that's why we are called as Christians to steward that well. And going back to the the topic that we brought up at the very beginning, we may come up with different ways of affecting the kind of change that we think would be good for our neighbor and serve our neighbors well. And yet at the same time, it doesn't take away the fact that we still do have this thing to steward. Right. And, you know, I, I think that's a thing that Christians even outside of the Anabaptist tradition have stumbled into from time to time is this idea of because the, the, the structures and the authorities in the world around me, the power and the structures in the world around me, these systems that I'm engaged in, because they're not going in the way that I think is good or right or appropriate, I therefore, I'm going to kind of just ignore it and step off and neglect my role in all of that. And I think that too actually is a way I, I can understand it because that exhaustion, that fatigue is, is easy to understand. And yet at the same time, that's a kind of abuse too. It's, abu- it's an abuse by neglect. And uh, I think as Christians, we are called to be mindful about what power we have and how to use that in a way that brings glory to God. Yeah, I think that dealing with ungodly power, especially in regard to family context, is such a major issue. It's almost on a daily level, especially in Asia. Uh, talked about how I think before this podcast recording I was talking with Timo about how in Asia, when you get married, for example, you're not actually leaving one family and creating a new family. You're actually creating an expansion to that one family that you've already belonged to. And so in Asia, there's this expectation that the grandfather or the oldest member of the family, whether it's the grandmother or the grandfather, right, would still have the final say and the final authority over the decisions that you uh, that you could make and the decisions that your kids could make, right? The grandpa has the authority over the son and the authority over the grandkids. Uh, even down to here's who you can and cannot marry. 
here's what you can and cannot take in your uh, college degree. Here's the kind of job that you'll go into. And determining those things really belongs to him. And I think that that's something that Christianity has radically challenged. Because again, power is not de facto kind of power. It's not automatically given to you by virtue of your age, nor your standing in the family, right? But it's actually uh, dependent upon whether or not you're conforming yourself to the word of God, honor your parents in the Lord, right? And so I think what members of our church have basically uh, done with regard to that kind of familial context is to set up certain boundaries, but also to accommodate in certain situations. That might mean still meeting your grandfather, you know, every once uh, once in a while, maybe once a month or once every two months. And I know my American listeners are probably thinking that's a lot. <laughs> uh, I only meet my family once a year in Thanksgiving, you know, and literally, you know, their grandfather would be a hundred years old or something like that, or 90 years old. And uh, uh, they would still go there to get his approval for certain decisions that the family needs to make. But college decisions and, and work decisions and, and other decisions that even go down to uh, the smallest detail, right? So, yeah, so they're, they're trying to make accommodations to honor their parents, to honor their, their grandparents, for example. But at the same time, they have to also make decisions to carve out and limit those those boundaries, right? So that the ungodly power that is over them does not overstep such that if, let's say, a grandparent is saying that you cannot marry someone outside of one's ethnicity, then perhaps there is principled resistance there. Because if this person is in Christ and there is no real reason morally or theologically to deny this marriage, then why should I deny this person or deny my, my, my kid towards this kind of marriage, right? But at the same time, still doing that in a way where you're not just breaking a family bond, breaking a family tie. Now, again, I think that's an intuition that a lot of our expat members, for example, don't really understand because they keep saying to these people, you know, we're all members of the same church. Hey, just don't ever visit your grandpa ever again. But they don't realize that that's really not an option for, the, for them, even if they're already 40 or 50 years old and their, parent, their grandparents are 90 years old. It's just part of the fabric of Asian culture and Asian society. So there's always a kind of principled accommodation and also principled resistance that you have to negotiate. And it's very hard to talk about these things in the abstract you have to be concrete about these things and talk on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, and it adds a whole element when you introduce like children into the arrangement because now the children are coming into it without the grid and the, the defenses that an adult might have. And so you have to care for those who have less power, right? Less kind of relational power. You have to care for them by also protecting them in this kind of situation, you know, and I think that actually expands beyond the fa- the sphere of the family. I mean, I think that that gets to our politics too, right? I, I taught, I said earlier that when there's an abuser and abuser and oppressor, you know, the victim has some power or will have some power down the road. And I realize there are those cases, of course, where there's absolutely no power, where it's a where it's a kind of a total and complete oppression or abuse. And I can imagine all kinds of scenarios, both in American history, um, whether it's with slavery or in other instances of slavery around the world today. And I think that's why those who have power are called like Christ, right? Not to consider that as something to be hoarded or clung to for their own sake, but rather to use that and to steward that to the effect of, um, you know, of bringing 
liberation of some kind, right? Of, 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 of mitigating against that abuse and that power. And the same thing happens. It happens in the family level and it happens at the church and it happens in government. And, uh, you know, I think that's also why, you know, to, to your point, Tommy, about a plurality of elders, having, having some wise counselors, having people who are engaged in dealing with these questions with you um, can be such a great aid because we know of our own fin- finite perspectives and how limited we are in understanding a situation and how helpful it is to have people, you know, like I have you brothers and everybody actually at the RTS, you know, staff and faculty and, and many of our students who are great conversants on these issues, because I know that in my position as the president, I don't have, I don't have the whole perspective, you know, and I need help in thinking through all the different contingencies related to an issue so that you can, you know, use this brain that God has given us to, you know, to bring about some relief to suffering and to bring about some defense of those who are defenseless. Really interesting. It draws me back to Romans 12 and 13 again. And, you know, one of the things that both Paul and Peter do is point to uh, yeah, in situations of oppression and situations of difficulty and hardship is point to the government government's authority as as one of the avenues that can offer justice and correction and help and I, we tend to kind of think about Christianity in and antagonism to the government and that's certainly there as well it's the principalities and powers that will bring persecution that will bring harm and that bring oppression but paul also you know refers to it positively they're the ones who are appointed by god to provide justice and to to correct abuse um they can be the the oppressor but they can also bring uh, a corrective and so you know in situations where i might feel powerless one of the things that i can do is uh, for the sake of justice, for the sake of uh, righteousness, is find those who can solve this problem, who can address these kinds of issues, and partner with them in, in a right way to bring about, as you put it, liberation, to bring about redemption, to bring about the, the, the ending of oppression. That's good. Yeah, and it takes, it takes that kind of wise analysis of a situation even to know like who are the people who can help in this situation? I think one of the more common conversations that I have with our students is how do I deal with this pastor or this person I'm working for who did this thing? And, and, and sometimes those things are quite serious and sometimes those things are kind of benign relational issues, you know, and it's a question I think that we all have. I remember going through seminary and learning so much about, how um, you had to navigate difficult personalities in the church as a pastor, you know, from the position of the pastor. And what I didn't hear as much from, and I I don't fault my professors for this, but I just think it was, you know, one of the happenstances of the curriculum, perhaps. I didn't hear as much about how to operate within a church where maybe the senior pastor wasn't that great of a, you know, of a leader. You know, how, how do I, how do I deal with the fact? And, and to be honest, I think a lot of people who are in positions that are 
sort of public and are built around their personality and built around their ability to speak well. Um, a lot of times the kind of person who's drawn to that position and succeeds in that position isn't the kind of person who's great at interpersonal relationships. Okay. Just looking at your faces. I think y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> You're like, yeah, like you, yeah. Scott. No, <laughs> no. Um, but to be honest, you know, that's a really difficult situation for a young seminary graduate to deal with. And it's not one that I heard much about until I got out into churches and, you know, kind of experienced some of that on my own or had friends who were experiencing that kind of thing and learning how to sort of distinguish between what's the sort of failure that requires bringing in sort of outside authorities, yeah. you know, to your point. And what's the kind of thing that requires, hey, you know, maybe this isn't just the right place for me to serve, or maybe this is just something that I personally will interact with this person on, and, and, that, and that can bring the solution. You know, they're just a little gruff sometimes in our meetings. Maybe that's the problem versus sort of a deep sort of abiding corruption or sin. And that's, that can be very hard, particularly for a young seminary grad, I think, who's still gaining experience to be able to discern between, you know, a deep failure, a deep sin of the kind that needs sort of external um, involvement and also just those interpersonal things that arise in any personal relationship, particularly one where there's a power differential. I had a very, very similar experience in, in my seminary days where we did these, um, we did these things, this class called mentored ministry and you'd come in and you'd give a case study You'd say, okay, here's what's going on. How do I fix it? And we'd all, young seminarians, we'd all kind of uh, bat it around a little bit for, for the course of, the, uh, of an hour and then go to the next case study. And it was amazing to me. Like the thing I learned from this class is no one talks to their elders because every single time, you know, it'd be like present this case study, we'd bat it around for an hour. And then our professor, uh, Tim Whitmer, would would lean over and goes, have you talked to your elders about this? And every single time the, the, the student would say, well, no, um, because like our instinct is I need to solve this problem. I need to be the fix. I need to be the one who, who, who completely repairs the situation here on my own. And that's just not how God has structured families, churches, or society as a whole. And so bringing those other people into the situation, I think is, is key. And bringing the right people into thinking wisely about who are the right people, who should be a part of this and who shouldn't, those, those kinds of conversations need to be more prevalent in our churches and in our culture. Yeah. And more natural, like it's a, it's a natural thing to move to. It's not right. like I think in some churches, having that conversation is seen as this really big deal that's created this huge situation, as opposed to letting that be a natural part of using and making the most out of this plurality of elders that we have in a Presbyterian context. Scott, to bring it back to home, perhaps, I'd love to hear just your thoughts about what makes a good leader, especially coming from a seminary president. Being a good leader, tell us how to be a good leader okay. as a, as an archetypal idea of what leadership looks like. Tell us expository. Uh, entering the deposit into the Venmo accounts that you all requested. 
right. as we speak. Um, yeah, I know. I appreciate that. And I, I'm, I'm obviously still learning how to be a leader and how to be a good leader. I hope I, you know, I think that that principle of how to glorify God in the, in the things that you've been given to steward and the people you've been given to steward, how do you glorify God and, and, and honor others is, is really key. And I think if you keep that at the core as a parent or as a spouse or, you know, as a pastor, I think that's, that's a great check mark. Right. And I've already quoted Psalm 139 about searching me, O God, and knowing my heart. I think that's a key aspect of it too, asking the Lord to show you the hurtful ways because you're never going to catch them. You're never going to, the heart is deceitful above all things. Uh, You're never going to catch them all. And you may not even catch the most significant ones and the role of the Holy Spirit, usually through others, usually through your friends, you know, Tommy, to the point about, plurality of elders. That's, that's often the way that you learn where you're failing and where your weakness is and where your strengths are as well, you know, but you know, the principles I try, I mean, I really do see the faculty in one way and then the faculty and staff in a different way as a part of this, this body, this organism that is, is on this earth for a particular purpose. And that is glorifying God through the teaching of, uh, you know, the teaching of the word of God and the whole counsel of God. And we're, we're all involved in that sort of formation, that project in different ways. And so I like to think about how as a team, we have providentially brought together this, this group of individuals who are working as an organism, right? Who are working together. And how do we do it in such a way that they personally get to flourish and have a sense and that exhilaration that comes from flourishing and yet also are working together to create something, you know, bigger than themselves. And, and I think we are part of something that's bigger than ourselves. It's uh, particularly this work. It's easy for me to cast vision as a seminary president because the thing that we're doing is so kind of, I think, obviously and clearly needed by those of us who are working in this organization. And yet at the same time, I don't want us to lose scope of that in, in sort of protecting, again, to the power question, protecting our own turf, protecting our own little areas, our silos that we've kind of built, you know, built moats around and that kind of thing, you know, but rather us all working together across platform to bring those things to the desired goal. And that's the part that, I mean, honestly, I'm still, I'm, 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 I'm trying to figure out and learn how to do that well. I think I'm, I'm learning myself how to do what I do well. And so helping other people have the freedom to kind of pursue this in a way that they feel is using their best gifts and strengths is, um, you know, is really, uh, is really important and something that's still developing along the way. But I mean, I like, I like giving, you know, we're talking, you know, as, as a faculty here, I like giving you all freedom to use your gifts and your skills in a way that moves forward this work of theological education in ways that you see as the most fruitful. And then coming alongside you and trying to, gui- if there needs to be any guidance to help guide you along in that work. But I think you all are so gifted in using what you have and the gifts and your backgrounds and your own autobiographies and kind of working out of that, that I really find my job's pretty easy. I just have to sort of say, here's the freedom, do it. And you guys do it. 
so that's been that's been kind of the gift of leadership for me and i appreciate part of being a leader is having a good team to lead and you guys have been an excellent team to work with somebody has to say okay somebody has to say something so i can respond to it and close and that is what good leadership looks like thanks gray appreciate that and uh thank you all for this discussion it's been great talking to you i always learn so much about you guys as i learned probably a lot more about myself too as i hear myself interacting with y'all it's it's great to have this conversation it's an important topic and it's one that we need to come back to i think in the months ahead as we're thinking about the situation in the world around us and uh and how we're operating in it as those who are followers of Jesus Christ, living out cruciformed models of leadership. So thanks for this discussion, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Until next week, take care. My, my gut at this point is to say something snarky, but it, it, that was just so kindly put. I, I, I can't think of anything snarky to say. <laughs> yeah, sense of leadership, man. Just do it. Just do it. <laughs> just do it. That's it. Just do it. No, that's awesome. That really was kindly put and excellently put. Well, I mean it. I mean, that's not... Those, those aren't just kind of pretty words. I, I mean that in terms of this group and... Uh, and I like the snark. See, that's one of your gifts and your skills, Tommy. I, I have want, the spiritual gift of want, snark. This is great. You got the spiritual gift of snark, and I want that. I want more of it. I want to give you the freedom to use snark. <laughs> My wife was listening to the podcast, and she was listening to our recording with uh, George, and she said there was something missing without Tommy around. I just don't laugh as much. <laughs> just the humor is just not there without you, man. The spiritual gift of humor. Yep. Mm. No, jaded I. Sarcasm. Wait, what was that? I said jaded sarcasm is, is jaded sarcasm. not on. It's not on Paul's spiritual gifts list, but it should be. It's on Paul John's spiritual gift list. <laughs> now he has to listen to this recording if he if he wants to know how he was mentioned in this one. <laughs> this is good. Does this stay in or no? <laughs> I think it's fair. <laughs> Timo, Timo's leaving it in. <laughs>